Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. Welcome to The Less Stressed Life, all about making this your time to feel freaking awesome about your life, health, and happiness. This podcast of The Less Stressed Life is hosted by Krista Bigler. Krista is an integrative registered dietitian nutritionist who specializes in reducing food-related stress, inflammation, and symptoms of food sensitivities. To learn more, visit lessstresslife.com. Okay, so today on The Less Stressed Life, we have Dustin James. Dustin James is a board-certified gastroenterologist and internal medicine doctor and the author of The Complete Idiot's Guide to Digestive Health. He practices at Parkland Hospital in Dallas, where he also teaches residence endoscopy with the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center and as the developer of tummy drops. But I don't want to stop there because he's an extremely, he's like probably the nicest doctor you will have ever met face to face. He's just very charismatic, kind, and he has a touch of mad scientist to him. So I think we'll even get into that in another life. He might come back as a food scientist a little bit. So I can't wait to get into that with him today. And welcome, Dustin. Mm-hmm. Great. Krista, thank you so much for having me. So you can, you know, the big thing, not that long ago, but Dustin and I were both at the Food Allergy Blogger Conference. And at that conference, you get to meet a lot of smaller companies with a lot of integrity. And that's that's um, something to be admired a lot. And I met him. We're going to talk about his product and kind of how he developed that soon. But um, we want to get we want to get to all that good stuff and how to settle down our stomachs and the research that's there. But first, you know, let's pick the brain of the GI doctor a little bit because that makes <laughs> that's very fun. It's I've been obsessed with the gut for many many years. So I'm actually curious, what made you go into that specialty? Yeah, so it's actually. I wish I had this amazing story where there's some people where they they can say, you know, at age five, you know, I was struck by lightning and a plastic surgeon reconstructed my arm. And I knew from then I wanted to do that. But mine is a little less, uh, we'll say, uh, interesting than that. But I think it's kind of a good story. So way back in in medical school, I had met my future wife and we were, were dating and uh, she used to get a lot of headaches and would take a lot of NSAIDs. And so at some point, she, she developed a lot of abdominal pain and went in to see the university GI doc, a doc, uh, Josh Korsnick, who, 
who has been really a, a great person clinically and research-wise for, for Crohn's disease, just for the entire world. He's, he has a lot of notoriety in that field. But he happened to be the doc who was supervising the sick med students. So he said, I think you need a scope. And I, you know, didn't know anything about endoscopy or at that point. I was still in, I think, second year. So you haven't started your clinical rotations yet. And he said, come on in and watch your, your, your girlfriend at the time get scoped. So I said, that, that sounds fantastic. And he's doing the endoscopy and I'm watching him do it. And, and then all of a sudden, towards the end, you, you twist the scope on itself so it looks back up at the heart that you can see beating inside the top of the stomach. It's an area called the, the cardia. Uh, and I see her heart beating through her stomach. And, and all of a sudden, I start to like pass out. And he look at, looks at me, and he's like, oh, boy, here we go again. Because that happens a lot with med students. It's usually not watching endoscopy, but it's, it's a, for whatever reason for me, it was a, it, it was a moment that he saw I was going to be lights out. So after that, he kind of kidded, kidded around and said, hey, you know, Dustin, why don't you come work with me a little bit and, uh, and see what GI is all about. And he was just a fantastic teacher, mentor. He became a great friend. I mean, he's a super interesting guy. I remember once he had us over to his uh, apartment at the time, and this was in St. Louis, and he had like a sarcophagus in there. We're like, who has a sarcophagus in his apartment? But he, he did. I mean, but he, and he, he was well known for not uh, maintaining a clean car. And so when he eventually got recruited over to the Harvard Hospital Systems, we had to give him a lot of gaggets, like, you know, fake rats that were actually mimicking the real rats found in his car, but, but that's story for another day. But anyhow, he was a fantastic doc, a great teacher, a great friend, and really pulled me into uh, patients that I loved working with. And his specialty was inflammatory bowel disease, so Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, and uh, just really loved the, the, the patients and, and really loved understanding how the immune system can, can play wreak such havoc on on the intestines and how important the immune system is to the development of so many diseases and in, in uh, human physiology. And so that was, it was just a, a fantastic time. We had the opportunity to do research projects together. Uh, some of them trying to figure out like, why does Crohn's happen in the first place? And that was a very interesting project. We never really got great results, but it did involve us going to like Home Depot and talking to the paint mixers on how we were going to collect stool and, and mix it up with a paint shaker and and uh, and collecting stool from from patients and, and and he was just that kind of guy. He said, you know, let's 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 do this. Let's go for it. And um, and and that's the reason why I just kind of fell in love with the patients, fell in love with the specialty, really through that that one person in my life. I bet we can all kind of reflect back to those people that that helped us do that. And I'm guessing that's maybe why you enjoy teaching. Now, before I let you answer that, I mm -hmm. thought this story was going to turn into I saw my wife's heart beating up through her intestines. And I thought there was going to be something romantic there. And it never came. But that's okay, too. <laughs> <laughs> you know that that I should actually the next time I tell that story I have to have to add that in that you know Cupid was there in the room and it just like resonated with her heart in a in a way that that is just not normally humanly possible. I, I like that. I'll have to incorporate yeah. that in. Yeah, it would she, make she's a uh, yeah she she thinks I'm cheesy already. So that would be that would be <laughs> awesome actually. To yeah. Add. 
edit in for her. <laughs> I think that would be a fantastic embellishment for sure. In fact, as you were telling that story, it reminded me when I was interning, I got in trouble for hanging out in the GI clinic too long, watching scopes and stuff and watching stress yeah. tests. And I'm, yeah, so I have a little flashback to that. <laughs> so I am curious, you know, the people that are listening to this, are not familiar with the work you do every day. So if you could summarize GI health in a paragraph, what are some of the conditions you see most often or how would you explain it? If you just are in, in the elevator with someone for a few minutes, how would you explain that? Yeah, so, and, and that's a, I'll give you kind of the, the shorter and maybe the, the longer answer there and just cut, totally cut me off if I'm, if I, I tend to be long-winded, we'll say. So so definitely uh, please stop me if I if I keep kind of going on. But but to describe what it what it is, I usually use the the comparison to my wife, who we went on to become a, a dermatologist. Where we say we're kind of kidding around. Everyone always wants to talk to the dermatologist and show them that mole or this this rash or what can I do for wrinkles or this or that. And I'm the kind of doctor where people, if they know what I do, they never want to talk shop in general because it usually involves things like poops and colon and, and things like that. But, but GI is so much more than just the intestines. And, and really, it's, it's, you know, I often will say to patients, it's anywhere starting in your mouth all the way down to your anus and everything in between, that, that, you know, up to about 25 feet in general from intestines to colon. And then you have to throw in organs like the gallbladder and the liver and the pancreas. Um, but how I tend to break it down is actually one of my other great teachers when I was actually in GI fellowship then. So after I had finished internal medicine, the three years, uh, it's a three-year GI fellowship. And the best teacher I had there uh, was a doctor who unfortunately passed way too early and young is uh, Dr. Ray Klaus. And, uh, and people in the, the field of like functional GI disease, which would include irritable bowel syndrome, he's, he's kind of regarded as one of the, the gurus on that. And, and he was a great teacher. He, he didn't really kind of mix his words at all. He, he wasn't there to coddle you. He was there to, to teach you. And he sat us down. There was four fellows in the class. And he said, look, if you're going to be a good gastroenterologist, and he's like, I want you all to be good gastroenterologists. Because he's like, trust me. He's like, there's GI docs out there that they don't know what they're doing. Or he's like, at least I don't think they know what they're doing. He's like, it's like, but I have this opportunity to shape how you think so I can make you into a good GI doc. So we're all kind of sitting there, you know, biting our, our fingernails like, oh, my goodness, it's going to be a long three years. But it, he just had the best advice even on day one. He's like, you have to think like you're in the gut. Like you have to imagine where this problem is and put yourself in the body at that point and think of all the forces that might be causing you to function or not function. So that really helped me conceptualize what, what the GI tract does, what is its purpose and how it can go wrong. So some of it is, of course, the thing that makes the most sense is getting the nutrition out of the food we eat and then kind of eliminating what we don't need or you know other byproducts from the body. And it, it's a little more complicated than that, but that's one way to think of one of the functions. It's also the best way that our body has to sample the environment. I mean, we're, we're eating things that are contaminated all the time. And usually when we think contaminated, we think like, you know, E. coli or listeria getting people, you know, some of these bad GI illnesses. But everything we touch or, or put in our mouth, it, it's going to have germs on it. But our body actually needs those germs to function properly. And it's uh, especially when you're a young kid, it really helps you shape your immune system and 
And there's a lot of research for, you know, the less germs you're exposed to, especially as a kid, actually the more sick you might be as an adult. So that's another function of the GI tract. And then there's all the kind of the complicated functions that come from the, the liver, uh, which is a lot of, of, once again, kind of sampling what we put into our body. So it's not just the foods where really all of the blood from the gut goes through the liver first. It's something called a, a first-pass metabolism, but it's the way for the, the liver to see, okay, not only did we eat that, but maybe what toxins are there as well, and to try to try to deal with them. So that's something else that, that we see on a kind of a, a fairly regular basis. And then one of the, the other important parts of the GI tract would be it's actually the second brain of the body. If, if you look at all of the nerve tissue in the body, the brain and spinal cord have the most, but the second, the little brain, is actually the gut. And it's that kind of interaction of the electricity of the gut and how it talks to the brain because there's direct pathways from the gut to the brain that can really influence uh, behaviors and pains and, and all these things. So, so to really be a, a good gastroenterologist, you have to really approach the gut is more than just, I eat this and, you know, poop out that. It's part of it, of course, but it's much more complicated than that. So so that is the very long-winded answer for what, what GI is. I'm grateful you gave us the long answer. I'm actually very <laughs> obsessed with um, liver function and detoxification right now as it affects skin health along with GI health. So I appreciate mm. you mentioning that. Um, and also, I mean, I mention this occasionally, but since I work with IBS, I mean, probably... <laughs> 90 plus percent, it seems like my clients suffer with anxiety. So there's a lot to say about the gut brain connection and how yes. that nervous system innervates. Um, just a lot there for sure. Oh, yeah. So as you got going into GI um, health, you became more and more fascinated. So now that you're in practice, um, what are some of the most common conditions that you end up treating? Yeah, so good, good question. My focus was always inflammatory bowel disease throughout training and, and early on in practice. And so I, I really do see a lot of patients who have IBD, inflammatory bowel disease, and Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis. Uh, to a degree, we would sometimes put like microscopic colitis in that or, or autoimmune enteropathy in that category. So, But that doesn't really represent a, a kind of a general visit to a, a GI practitioner. Um, if you remove IBD from there, certainly IBS is one of the most common reasons I see see patients and that whole spectrum of IBS or visceral hypersensitivity. And then there there's kind of conditions that just go along sometimes with the the occasional, we'll say, unhealthy American lifestyle where we see a lot of reflux or fatty liver disease. And then uh, a very, very important uh almost it's a procedure, not really a condition, but see a lot of people for colon cancer screening these days with colonoscopies. And, and that's it. It's totally different. It does involve some kind of cognitive work, but it, it, it's, a, it's a procedure. And so it's, it's one of those aspects of GI that, that seems kind of detached because a lot of GI is talking and becoming a detective. And then some of it, though, is actually doing things. And, and that's one of the other appeals of gastroenterology is you you're not a surgeon, but you get to do medical procedures that most medical specialties don't don't have that opportunity to do. That and those are the math scientist one. part, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it makes it more fun. So when you've got these big conditions, um, what are some mm -hmm. of the different comorbidities or symptoms that you see coming along with this all the time? 
Yeah, yeah. So, so we'll go. We'll start with IBS because IBS is really a, di- a clinical diagnosis or a diagnosis of exclusion, meaning that it's something that you can only come to that conclusion someone has IBS if you've excluded other conditions. And often people will come in and say, "Oh, I have IBS." And right off the bat, if they have never been checked for thyroid disorders or for celiac disease, those are some of the first things we do because there is a, a big overlap of, of symptoms that people will have from thyroid disease or, or celiac. And, and usually uh, those could be bloating, pain, change in bowel habits, uh, just fatigue, a whole spectrum of, of skin changes, a whole spectrum of, of conditions uh, or, or symptoms. IBS, though, you have to exclude things like celiac and thyroid problems, and then it, you have to focus on, on pain. If you don't have pain, you probably don't have IBS. It's actually one of the hallmarks of that clinical diagnosis is that you, you've had a change from being maybe a normal person in terms of your GI symptoms to having pain come on and, and your bowels have been affected. And sometimes when you go to the bathroom, it feels better. And that's part of the, the Rome criteria. And I wish just I can say that the Rome criteria is like an acronym or means something cool. It just so happens that in GI, I guess we're not that creative. So we usually will name syndromes or classifications after the city that the conference took place where they actually named this. So there, there's one for reflux disease, for instance, too, where it's called the Los Angeles criteria because it was in L.A. that they – they actually were able to come up with these criteria. So, so that, that's some of the symptoms for IBS. It's definitely a, a pain that people have and a change in their bowel habits. Uh, celiac, we kind of talked about a little bit. It's an overlap of those symptoms, but more systemic in a way. You, you often will see the, the fatigue, the rashes, and not just even the, the dermatitis or pediformis, but other kind of skin diseases and eczemas. Celiac is actually a condition where the whole body is really affected. And if you just focus on the gut, you, you might be missing things. And then reflux, it's usually uh, people will have kind of that classic heartburn. If not, sometimes they'll come in with hoarseness and it's because the acid is irritating the vocal cords or you know people will come in with, with, with diarrhea for a variety of conditions. Usually when someone comes in with inflammatory bowel disease, they, they look more acutely ill. And by that, I mean they, they've maybe lost a ton of weight recently, they have fevers, they have joint aches. It's something where you get the, the sense, just them walking into the room, that you know something is, is acutely wrong. And it's not to say that in celiac, you, you, it's definitely a problem, but it's something that comes on usually a little more insidiously. So definitely you can see someone is not healthy, but with IBD, it's usually... It, boom, it's there. It's something came on rapidly and, and you can tell it's just draining the life out of someone. Do you test or screen for non-celiac gluten sensitivity? I, I sure do. And actually it, it's something where the, the medical recommendations are, are changing on this. Um, but, but if someone comes in uh, to see me and they have symptoms of, of celiac or, or of, of, of IBS and most patients will get an upper endoscopy with a biopsy of their small intestine. And we're looking for changes and kind of the little carpet-like fingers called villi. And sometimes if it's really bad celiac, you'll see that the, the little fingers have pretty much been cut off. Sometimes you see they're, they're very plump with immune cells, or sometimes you just see that there's extra immune cells there. And if I have a patient with any one of those changes, 
but their blood test was negative for, and by blood test, I mean the, the tissue transcutaminase. I'll say, look, let's, let's go ahead and, and maybe do some HLA testing, uh, the DQ2, DQ8, and just to see if you have these genes that would make it much more likely to have something like non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And, and a lot of times, you, 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 I guess, wouldn't be surprised. A lot of people will have these alleles and they go on a gluten-free diet and they feel better. I even had a woman once who it looked like she had uh, small bowel Crohn's disease, but she also had some of this intraepithelial lymphocytosis, which could sometimes come from Crohn's, uh, but did the HLA testing because her TTG was negative and it turned out to be positive. She went on a gluten diet a year and did great, like within three months. And a year later, went through and biopsied both her intestines from the, the stomach side as well as the colon side and everything had resolved. And so it, it's interesting. I think that as time goes on, it, it's kind of like eosinophilic esophagitis. We're going to learn more and more and have more concrete clinical recommendations. But right now, it's kind of on that fringe. And so you have to go with what's published, but then also have to be an old-fashioned detective and, and just use reason to, to try to help out in those conditions. So the, the answer is yes, definitely look for that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Is it a fair assessment? I know we talked about IBS being an exclusion condition, but is it fair to mm-hmm. sort of say, sometimes I say it's sort of like a trash can diagnosis because it's like, oh, you check one, two, three, four marks. I think it's three. Now you have this disease. Um, is that fair or unfair to kind of characterize? Because people seem to get IBS and then they're kind of stuck. Yeah. So, so IBS is, is really a lot of it has to do with the, the treating uh, physician, because if let, let's say there, if, if you, if you stop kind of putting in the, the brain power, we'll say, into just thinking about the, the person and their symptoms and how they're responding, it's easy to, yeah, just have that be the kind of the, the last condition. You just kind of aggregate everyone like, Oh, it's just IBS, just IBS. But usually what I'll tell my patients, I try to take a little different approach and say, look, we've done all this testing, which is you know great news and reassuring. It's pointing towards irritable bowel syndrome. Sometimes I'll, I'll use the terminology visceral hypersensitivity as well, especially if it is something where stress will especially bring it on or people have had things like migraine headaches because it, it is a spectrum. But I'll say this. I'll say, look, it's still important for us to, to go ahead and, and treat this symptomatically because as as of right now there is no cure for IBS, but you can treat the symptoms. So we'll I'll focus on ways to treat symptoms. But I also say, look, we have to keep reevaluating, and we have to just keep an open mind because tell the patient you know your own body better than anyone else does. And if something comes up, it might seem trivial. You know, let us know. Let's talk about this because it could turn out that. You know, you have this other condition that just hadn't manifest itself clearly yet. And, and so I think it's important if someone is labeled with IBS that, that it gets reevaluated or at least keep an open mind on, on how you want to approach it. Because like you said, it's very easy to just get in that rut, say, oh, it's IBS. And people often uh, say, well, take this antispasmodic or this or that, and, and they kind of leave it be. Um, but, but usually it, it's a comprehensive approach and keeping an open mind that leads to the best patient outcomes. And a comprehensive approach is, is if, you know, if someone needs an antispasmodic, then you know, certainly can do that. Um, but sometimes relaxation therapy, uh, working with dietitians, 
And it's really, it's really important too. I always send my patients say, you know, beyond just having celiac disease or say carbohydrate malabsorptive, someone or a condition for someone who has IBS, I will always have them go, go meet with a dietitian as well. And, uh, and then sometimes using like migraine uh, headache medications can be very helpful for that. But, but I think the patients do best when you customize the therapy to their complaints and to just their personality because some people might be like, you know, I don't want to take a migraine med. It makes me gain weight. I get tired. And then those are patients where you might want to send them to uh, relaxation therapy or cognitive behavioral therapy uh, where they can really achieve some of the same effects without medications. And, and so, yeah, IBS is, is really, it's a fascinating condition. And, and as time goes on, we're learning more about, you know, possible causes for it, anywhere from bacteria to meds and, and so on and so forth. But but it, it's, it's something I really enjoy taking care of, and especially when I can help the patients feel better. Absolutely. I actually appreciate everything you said. I just want everyone to know that I didn't tell him to tell people to work with a dietitian, but it is true. There are definitely subsets of dietitians who specialize in kind of helping reverse those symptoms because it is possible. You know, there's a reason we have that. And when you talk about stress therapy as well, you know, stress has this physiological impact, not only on our nutrient status, but our hormone levels, which, you know, it's like a domino effect all the time. And so um, I appreciate that you're going about it from a holistic fashion from many yeah. angles, right? Like it is many angles. It's not just one. It's probably several. And so we have to always be cognizant of that for sure. Exactly. I also appreciate that you're evaluating thyroid or celiac first, because usually when I get people to me, it's tricky because it's kind of nice if they could have already been evaluated for celiac because we're probably going to end up eliminating wheat. It's going to depend on their particular, um, sensitivities potentially or different factors but it's kind of nice that you get that out of the way right away because i like to eliminate that as it's 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 more due diligence to get some of that um out um and so so talking about bloating on as well um are you seeing a lot of small intestinal bacteria overgrowth now are you looking at that very much yeah so so that, that's a very interesting and controversial field or part of the the field so Years back, and I'm in Dallas now, but did, did do kind of my growing up in GI in St. Louis and uh, two excellent universities there, St. Louis U and Washington University. And, um, and, and there was always a little bit of this antagonism because one of the doctors who kind of pioneered this concept of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, really underlying almost all of IBS, was from St. Louis, and he he be believed very strongly in a certain antibiotic to to treat IBS. And in, in in my clinical experience, I've definitely seen some people who've been labeled as IBS with a ton of bloating component to it, where they will get better with this antibiotic to treat the the SIBO. The, the and that's just what we how we abbreviate usually the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Sometimes it, it is uh, amazing how the duration of, of that treatment can and really help the, the patient long term. Sometimes, though, they'll, within a month, the bloating is back. And, and my take on bloating is it, it's best to know where it's, where it's coming from. And, and certainly bacterial fermentation 
of, of fiber or let's say malabsorbed nutrients is, is a huge source of, of this gas and, and that can that can lead to the symptoms. Sometimes though, if the patient does have a little visceral hypersensitivity, the gas might not be all that much, but it's that the nerves or if you've ever seen that movie Spinal Tap, it's like on the amplifier that that, that gentleman's amp went up to 11. It was a special one. And that's kind of how the volume is on the pain coming out of the gut, where without that visceral hypersensitivity, it might be a two. But with the amp cranked up to 11, it's like, it's 11. And like, man, even a light touch in my belly, it's like you're stabbing me with daggers. So I think it's important to take that into account. SIBO, in most people who have a normal functioning gut or don't have other conditions, there's not a great explanation for why they would get SIBO in the first place. Um, But there's certainly conditions like scleroderma very commonly because the gut doesn't contract that well or any condition that causes the gut to not contract well can lead to to this this SIBO condition because you can't have the normal system in place that would move these bacteria into the the colon. Um, Or if someone has like some anatomical abnormality in their small intestine, or they've been on long-term antibiotics, and it's kind of just messed with the whole the whole microbiome. Mm-hmm. Um, but for people who who don't have those risk factors, I'm definitely not going to say it's impossible to have SIBO, but it's a little less likely. And those would be the people too, where when you give them antibiotics, you might just be killing off the bacteria in the colon, and that. If you're doing that, then those bacteria won't ferment and you won't get the gas and you'd feel better anyways. And, and the, how we test for SIBO isn't a precise mm-hmm. science either. And so sometimes you're just capturing someone with, who has something called like a rapid transit where they're just moving things to their colon very quickly, which is a, a big feature of IBS. And you're just measuring when that hit the colon for the test. And the idea for the test, though, is if you breathe out a certain compound before you would think that that substance should get to the colon. That must mean that it's being fermented in the small small intestine. But I, I always like to check a, a vitamin B12 level when I'm mm-hmm. looking at SIBO because usually the bacteria, if they are in the small intestine, will really interfere with the absorption and chew up the B12. And, and so patients would often have a very low level of, of that. So from my personal perspective, and this is by no means – supposed to be representative for IBS and SIBO as a whole. But in my personal perspective, maybe one out of 20 patients who I see with with labeled as SIBO will get a good long-term sustained benefit from treatment of that. Um, but but certainly for for patients, it, it's it's an it's an easier test to do sometimes. And sometimes if it, it can be very disheartening to say, well, my doctor did all these tests and, and, you know, nothing's coming back positive. You know, IBS being a clinical diagnosis that sometimes if it does come back positive, they, it, gives, it gives them a little assurance that, okay, that maybe this is it. We're, we're going to go for it and see what happens. But it, just that peace of mind can be, can be helpful for patients as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate you mentioning the B12. I see that being low in a lot of people, but I think it's because of the people I'm looking at. Um, yeah. SIBO has become 
trendy. I don't necessarily, you know, um, as you said, the testing isn't a precise science, so I don't really prioritize that by any means. I just try to reverse the other symptoms. And if there's still Mm -hmm. things left standing, then we just, you know, check things off the list or or discuss it and discuss some of the approaches and and different things as well. So um, because everyone's got kind of different approaches there, but I was curious your thoughts. So that's awesome. So what, I know we got a little deep into the conditions there, but what are some other specialties that you work closest with? Yeah, yeah. So one of the biggest are the colorectal surgeons. And, and from that, that usually spins or really spins off from the, the colonoscopy side of things, where if, let's say someone does have a colon cancer and they need to see a surgeon, or if they have an anal fissure that's not healing or hemorrhoids, that we would we definitely work together very closely and it's always a, a very, very important, I think, to have a colorectal surgeon that you have a good relationship with for your patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And, and you try not to do surgery, especially on Crohn's, but sometimes you have to. And, and having a good surgeon who's really uh, been through the education, focusing on IBD can, can really make a huge difference for, for patients. So that's one. Uh, two, a lot of, a lot of internists will, will send us patients um, and so, and that would be things like for not only screening colonoscopies, but reflux or, you know, liver abnormalities, you, you name it. And then do work a lot with dermatologists because going back to skin on the inside, skin on the outside, the skin will manifest kind of inward problems or inner problems very uh, more often than you would think. And, and certainly with, with celiac disease, as an example, there's that really itchy condition, dermatitis repetiformis. But uh, sometimes it, it's very, very, very strange things. Like you can pick up that someone has a tumor in their pancreas based on a special rash around their mouth or a zinc deficiency based on another kind of perioral rash. And, and, and a lot of nutritional deficiencies will manifest on the skin first. And so do work a lot with, with dermatologists. And then something that's kind of crept in recently in the last 10 years or so because of our use of biologics a lot, things like Remicade, um, is that people are, are much more prone to get skin cancers. And so we, we will definitely want them to be set up with a dermatologist to look for skin cancers because their risk would be a, a lot higher. Um, also work with a lot of allergists. Um, just because they, we, there is some overlap of, of these allergic conditions and immune conditions. Um, don't like to work with the oncologist that much because it usually mm-hmm. means, you know, someone, it's more sad, um, but, but they're a great group of, of docs. And then uh, beyond that, do work with a lot of dietitians and, um, and then speech therapists as well. And, and by speech therapy, it has nothing to do with like enunciating words or how you talk. But they have really emerged as the experts in swallowing. And so if someone has swallowing problems, we work very closely with the uh, speech therapist. And that would cover most most of the bases. You bet. So, so um, this is a hard question, I think. And I think you're going to have a great answer for it. So, awesome. As you know, healthcare has been evil evolving quite a bit, right? I mean, oh, yeah. in, a, in a lot of ways, it's stayed a little bit the same, but on the outside and things that are filtering down to us, uh, it's it's changing a bit. So this is going to be kind of a loaded question. There's several questions uh-huh. here, and you can just kind of pick out what makes sense to you. You know, sure. are there certain aspects that you find specifically challenging in the way you're able to work with clients and deliver solutions? I know that you like to really help people from a whole perspective. So is it hard for you to kind of do that 
traditional in and out 15 minutes? Do you structure your practice a little bit differently? Or, you know, from even another perspective, if you could change and create a new healthcare reform, how would you do that, you know, as you look at this? Oh, yeah. No. And, and trust me, this is something that, that is, is whenever you get a, a bunch of uh, health care providers together, th- this always come, comes up. And, and kind of the sad thing I've noticed is as each year goes by, uh, the people you can tell are becoming more and more disheartened. So that, that's kind of the sad aspect of it. From my perspective, I was, I was, we'll say I'm not really known for being on time, which is something I'm working on because I want to be fair to all patients. But if someone needs extra time, I'm not going to say, hey, that's 15 minutes, you're, you're out of here. So and that, but I think if, if people are more accepting of that, if you spend that amount of time with everybody, but, but that, that is, that's something where I'm trying to find a balance because I don't want someone to have to, you know, wait an, an hour later for their appointment. Um, but I do really feel it's important. But the way that the healthcare system is set up is is you're penalized for that, for for spending that time. And, and some people have tried to get around it. You've probably heard of boutique medicine where mm-hmm. you limit the patients and you pretty much have open access to your doctors. And there there's some GI docs who are doing that now. Um, but but it's something we we, we definitely struggle with. Um, because like you said, I mean, the perfect for me would be a setup where you spend time with the patient. You, you because really GI is 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 unique in that you know, like I can't always just just look at you and say, okay, this is what's going on because this, these are things that are internal. So you have to do a lot of old fashioned detective work. You have to talk. You have to do a, a physical exam, and then we use tools like endoscopy or imaging tests or labs to sort out the rest. Um, but it's not something where in dermatology you can look at it and say, well, I think it's that. We're going to biopsy it, and then you're you're done. Um, so, so it's something for my ideal situation would be to have that time to really just kind of hear the story, see what's going on, listen to the patient's concerns, and then from that point, come up with a strategy. Because I always tell my patients, there's always an explanation. Say, these are the common things, so we'll start by that, and then we'll move on. But often, you know, you will say, you know, I want you to get these other tests done, but I also want to focus on treating, you know, your symptoms or this or that. And, and, and to have, let's say, everything kind of ready to go or have a, a dietitian next door that they could go visit before they go home or, you know, even on the way home, get their, their blood drawn and so on and so forth. That would be great. But the way the healthcare is set up now, unfortunately, there, there is really a, an effort to, to be a volume game now. And, and it wasn't always that way. And, and it, is, it is kind of frustrating to, to practice in that. And and it's kind of sad because the, there's been many kind of academic investigations into, you know, what, what's wrong with medicine and healthcare, and what are some of the, the dangers that are coming up, not just in the next year, but in the next 10 years. And physician burnout is actually predicted to be one of the biggest problems in, in let's say, 10 years. If you just have docs who don't really, they're just burnt out or they quit or they just don't care anymore, it, it, no one's going to win. And and a lot of that goes because every year there's there's always more requirements for us. And, and it's estimated that sometimes docs will spend 75 to 80 percent of their time doing paperwork or, or doing the, the forms that are mandated by insurance companies or the government and only 20, 25 percent actually with a patient now. And, and that's kind of sad. It, it, it really shouldn't be that way. But um, for, for how to fix it, that, that's a that's a that's a tricky uh question and um 
I think we'd, we'd all do well to remember that when health insurance companies started, they were nonprofits. And I think if you get a group of people together who are like-minded, who really want to help a situation and are not motivated by profit, you're going to have different outcomes. And, and I think medicine in general attracts people who want to help people. I mean, it's just one of the, the common features. And so you have, we'll say, a very good pool to work with, the people who are caring. Um, but then you you have someone who's very profit-oriented now nowadays who's driving a lot of these decisions. And the decisions are, are very rarely based on what's best for doctors or patients. And, you know, let's say you can get this medication because that's who we have a, a contract with that drug manufacturer. It's mm-hmm. not because that drug's the best. It's because they're giving us the best deal. Or you need to get your your x-ray here because we have a relationship. And, you know, with CVS buying Aetna, you better believe that everyone who who has Aetna as their insurance company is going to be getting their meds from CVS now, right? So, so you're, you're having less and less choice, and the executives are getting richer and richer. And, and it really shouldn't be that way. And, and, and so that, that's one of the ways that there's, there's just way too much healthcare cost because a lot of these health care companies are, are profit-driven now. Mm-hmm. And being profit-driven, they always use that kind of, I think, cop-out statement. Well, I my first obligation is to my shareholders, which, which you know, is a very selfish way of looking at it and kind of diluted way because, you know, people are in medicine to help people, not to make a profit. So we, we would do well to remember that. But unfortunately, I think that there's there, the people in, in control of a lot of the legislation are, are – will benefit by the system staying like it is. So so that's a problem. Another thing that I see that just unnecessary health care a lot is, uh, well, there, there, there's a couple things that is unnecessary spending. Some of it is the legal society we live in. And uh, there's a, a thing called defensive medicine where you might think on a list of 100 things a patient might have that number 100 would be like a rare tumor of the adrenal gland. You, you're just not, this is not common. But if you were to miss that, and uh, the lawyers would, would, would be more than happy to, to, to sue you for missing that. So in order to avoid that, you, you practice what's called defensive medicine. And there was a survey where virtually almost all physicians, to some degree, practice defensive medicine because they don't want to get sued and you know, ruin your life type thing. Um, so it, it's if... if if there was more tort reform, that would certainly help. And, and I have a, a very interesting aside story. And if it's too much, to say, uh, I don't need it. Or, or, but when I lived in Missouri for a while, it, it did not have tort reform. But one year, tort reform passed. And everyone was so happy because there was going to be less litigation against physicians. So everyone said that was great. Your malpractice rates went down. And then the Supreme Court of Missouri decided to repeal tort reform and go back to how it was. So one of the first things that happens are the insurance companies like, well, we're going to get sued more, so you owe us money for your malpractice insurance. So that, was a, that wasn't great. But the reason that Missouri cited it was, was, was just insane to me. So it, it actually dated back to before Missouri was a state. And like pre-Missouri, Missouri, I guess Daniel Boone was a fur trapper there, and he got into some trouble. And I don't know all the exact details, but he was in trouble and he had to go to the equivalent of a court then and he didn't have a lot of money. And so he couldn't 
get a fair trial because he didn't have a lot of money. And because of that, Missouri said, well, in pre-Missouri, Missouri, if you didn't have enough money, you couldn't get a fair trial. So we're getting rid of tort reform because by limiting how much money the attorneys can make, they might be less interested to take on that case if they can't get as rich from it. And thereby, you're limiting a patient's access to the court system, and it's and it's unconstitutional, and they got rid of it overnight. And I think there was a collective sigh of just disgust and disbelief in Missouri when that happened. It was just insane. But Waste but, of time. <laughs> yeah, a total waste of time and just ridiculous. But but certainly, that would help out because if, if you're doing less tests, then you're, you're freeing up that, that money to help people, like get them free medicines, you know, get, get people in. And, and the thing is, is I've never met a doctor who's refused to take care of a patient who's having a, a true emergency. Even back before the kind of the, the, the ACA and everything, the Affordable Care Act, if a patient came into the ER and they were like bleeding to death, I wasn't going to say like, oh, you don't have insurance, you know, whatever. You know, we would go in like like a, a decent human being and say, okay, you need my help, I'm going to help you. And and that's the end of it. And 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 it, that's always been there, that kind of that altruism. But it, it's it's unfortunate how it's it's like so many things in the world today. It's become such a such a mess. Um, but but focusing on that. And another thing I think there's a lot of unnecessary spending is is unfortunately an end of life care. And, and that's a really tricky subject because you know, it's your loved one and, and you know, they're, they're dying. And, and if you look at most of the spending that goes into someone who, who winds up dying from a serious condition, most of it is in like their last, you know, month or two of their life. And, and um, you know, embracing more hospice when appropriate and, and definitely don't want to force it onto a family who doesn't want it, but maybe educating families more. And, and how I would always put it when I had patients, unfortunately, I've had patients who who have passed, who've had terminal conditions is, is, you know, it's not like you're not going to get treatment anymore, but we're going to change our goals with this treatment. We're not going to try to cure you anymore, but we're going to try to make that the days you have remaining be as meaningful for you and your family. And, and, and I think just helping patients understand that they, they might say, you know what, I, my first wish would be to have like grandpa beat this lung cancer, but you know, I, it just, Everything's pointing to the fact that it's not going to happen. But yeah, it would be great to have grandpa, you know, home with us and with the kids and enjoying it. And, you know, on a personal note, my my own grandfather had a terminal brain cancer. And when he knew kind of what was coming, we were very, you know, we're just very had a very nice kind of last few months with him. And he said, look, I know I'm not going to get better. And so He's like, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to go in the hospital and get all these tubes and breathing machines and this and that. He's like, I'm, I'm going to take you and the family to, to Vegas. He liked going to Vegas. So we went, my wife and my, well, we had two sons at the time. We have a daughter now, but, and everyone went with him and kind of spent a good time with him at Vegas and he hung out with his buddies. And then, you know, after that, he, he, he went into hospice and, 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 and he passed, but, but it, it, it it, it was from a personal perspective, I could see like that, that was so much better than, than, you know, having him be so weak from, from chemo or this or that, and, you know, wind up dying on a, a ventilator or something like that. But like I said, that, that's a, that's a tricky subject. And, uh, you know, because you'll, you'll get people who will definitely be passionate 
uh, in terms of do everything to the last second. And, and, and I'm not to, the one to judge that at all. But I think just offering that as, as an alternative and educating the, the families involved in those decisions would be another way where that healthcare spending would free up capital to, to do things. Like, like in, in Europe, for instance, there's, there's so much more money being spent on preventative medicine and, and preventative medicine is not just, you know, getting your colonoscopies or pap smears, but it's, you know, eating well. And there's like health campaigns on, you know, why you don't want to get angry or why you don't want to eat that. But, you know, we don't really have that as much. So I know that we could, we could, we could talk for like 10 days, I think, on healthcare reform. But, but I, I tend to be scientifically driven in how I think. But I mean, I also like, I love art too. So I, 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 I really like the, the, the art and science of things. But the scientist in me would say, look, identify like three big things. Let's come up with a, a very educated panel on what solutions might be. Let's implement those. And then let's follow up because, hey, we may not get it right the first time, but we'll learn through our mistakes. And then the second iteration, hey, it's, it's better. And then maybe just fixing three things. It doesn't fix everything, but it helps out a lot. And then keep going through that framework until you have something that people can agree upon. But that's the other thing, right, is getting people to agree. In this country now, is, is very difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but, you know, that, that's, so that, that's my little bit of uh, politicism interjected into, into medicine. <laughs> yeah, we got really serious there for a second. I was going to say, after you finish making wheat bread gluten-free and you <laughs> finish making the best-tasting gluten-free beer, then you can run for Congress. Just kidding. Not that that would help. Oh, no. But <laughs> just kidding. You know, but this is a good lesson. So to summarize, you know, you could take – if you take three big ideas that are causing you pain in any area of your life and you work on improving those three things or even just one of them, then you're more likely to have success because you're focusing on that versus trying to do everything at once, right? We can use all those things. And by the way, I think you'd do great in boutique medicine. And I hadn't thought about it. I hear the term concierge medicine. It's more in the cities thrown around. And I guess by default, I've had to become a boutique nutritionist because of the way insurance is as well. So it was just an yeah. interesting topic the way it, what insurance can do here. But oh, let's, yeah. let's get lighter here. So <laughs> we, um, you obviously were seeing some common symptoms going on in your practice because, and you really just were bored and you needed some extra things to do. So you created this product, <laughs> but why? Tell us a little bit about tummy drops and how they came about. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when I first went into practice, I had no inkling that I would ever create a product called tummy drops or even create a product ever. And it was really, I was inspired by my own patients. And, and I, I, I told my wife, I thought the universe was, was talking to me because within a two week span, I had so many of my patients come in with very common digestive complaints. And the thing is, is, is very rarely digestive complaints can be cured. You know, for instance, let's say you have an ear infection, you take antibiotics and hey, most of the time it's gone and you don't worry about it anymore. With a lot of these chronic GI conditions, you really can't cure it. So you have to approach it symptomatically. So let's say someone was coming in with a nervous stomach or what we call a, a prominent gastrocolic reflex, which is basically you eat something and you have to go poop right away um, and, and say, you know, I, 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 that symptom's really bothering me or I'm having a lot of nausea, a lot of pain. And what would you recommend? And, and so sometimes we will 
offer like your traditional drugs where like antispasmodics would be something to help out if you, you would take it before you eat so you don't have to rush to the bathroom. Or with pain, sometimes we'll use a lot of uh, neuromodulators, which would be things like uh, Pamelor or tricyclic antidepressants. Not for depression at all, but more for almost the anti-electrical like, activity. And that's why people will take them for migraine headaches. So using these migraine medications. But that's definitely not for everybody. And, uh, and often there's side effects. And so my, my approach kind of early on was I, I tried to minimize those unless needed. And so patients say, well, okay, well, what else can I do then if I don't want to take this medicine or I've taken it and I hate it? And so then I'm like, oh, you know, go take some probiotics, go take some peppermint oil, ginger, because there is a there is a, a abundance of good medical literature on using nature botanicals to treat digestive conditions. And in this country, unfortunately, we've been slower to embrace it than, let's say, like Germany, which is like the ultimate place to embrace natural therapies. Um, but but there's there's been in medicine, uh, we'll say, a lot of skepticism towards that. And and I just I didn't know. I just like I'll just go get some peppermint oil, and and almost invariably people will come call me back and say I put that in my mouth, a drop, and it burned my mouth, and my eyes were watering and trying to kill me. Or I took those ginger capsules, they didn't do anything. Or you know what probiotic, you know refrigerated, not. And then I'm like, hmm. And and this happened about I kid you not, like 30 times in a two week span. And I'm like, you know what? I gotta I gotta make something that that would be a dependable, reliable way for, for patients to, to get these kind of natural approaches to symptomatic relief. And I didn't know what I was getting into. I, I was not in any way educated in, uh, in business or anything like that. But, but I, I, I was very interested in learning. I was very interested in, I guess that's the artist part of me, of, of creating something that would hopefully people would, would find some benefit from. And, uh, and talk to my wife and she's like, yeah, let's go for it. You know, it makes sense. And so we said, okay, let's, let's start by looking at the medical literature. You know, let's not reinvent the wheel here. Let's see what's out there and use that as a starting point. And, and it became obvious, you know, how at least science at the time thought that these could help. So we, we had a kind of a good understanding of where to start. And then we said, okay, now we actually have to make this happen. And so uh, discuss it with the FDA. They have very strict regulations on, on not just creating but labeling of products, the CFR 111, and make sure we were compliant with that. And at first we said, oh, we're just going to put it in a, in a capsule. We're going we're gonna to make a super capsule with like ginger powder and, and peppermint oil and, and all of this. And then pretty quickly realized that, that one, you know, capsules, they're, they're not great. They're usually not instantaneously released. Um, and there's nothing really that unique about it. And then it just it was the universe talking again. We we decided that, man, we want to make our own probiotics in chocolate, because we were trying to like get our, our children to take probiotics and say, oh, this is great. And there was a company who had developed a technique to encapsulate probiotics, and it got really put us more into the candy making field from out of the pharmaceutical field, and and it just met these great people who had a completely different perspective on things. But we kind of realized that, you know, as Hippocrates, I think it was Hippocrates said that food is thy medicine, right? It's, it's medicine and food don't have to be two separate things. 
And we said, you know, ginger, for at least a lot of people, tastes great. Peppermint oil tastes great. If you were to eat something right away, you would start to get absorption, the kind of the sublingual the, in, the, in the tongue, and you would get more absorption through the stomach, and you just have a rapid onset. And, and there, there is some evidence, too, that some of the, the insulin effects of being postprandial or just being postprandial after you eat can help out with nausea, too. We said, man, if we did a capsule, we would be missing out on all of those great aspects of these botanicals. So we really did a, a, a 180 there. We did pursue the chocolate. Uh, it, w- it was actually chocolate with vitamin D3 and probiotics. But we were complete fools because we were going to launch this product in the St. Louis heat of like 110 degrees and realize that as a small company, it would, it would cost us like five times what we would sell a product for to ship it in a refrigerated truck to stores. And so we, we kind of learned from our mistakes. And the, the, the few people who actually tried the probiotic chocolate loved it and were very sad to see it go away. But we kind of realized, okay, we, we, need to, we need to be a little more intelligent in our approach here. But through knowing some of these candy makers, we got to know people who were, were traditionally candy makers who had entered into the realm of, of drug manufacturing or supplement manufacturing. And so we were trying to think of, okay, do we put it in like a taffy chew or this or that? And then knowing more about how these substances work, we said, Let, let's choose to put it in a hard, kind of a hard candy base. And the reason was, is that a hard candy is made in a certain way with a certain temperature and a certain dehydration that I'll kind of get to in a minute, which was very important for the ginger piece. But it also is incredibly stable because it's so dry it doesn't spoil and it's such a good matrix that it actually keeps the botanicals fresh and and working and so with the ginger it's something where all botanicals have you know hundreds of compounds in them that may or may not help and to be honest no one's quite sure exactly like this one chemical is is the one that's doing it all It, it seems to be more of a gestalt situation where you know, the, the, it, it's more, it's kind of the greater than the sum of its parts and, and it's combinations or ratios of substances that really give you the clinical benefits. And, um, for peppermint oil, that's in the, the volatile aspects, meaning the molecules that can get into the air so you can taste it and you can smell it. And so that one was fairly easy, but the ginger, all of the medical data on it was that it was actually the non-volatiles that were helping. And so those were the parts of ginger that were spicy, almost like a pepper, but didn't really smell or taste like ginger. And that's something I'll, that created some problems for us with tummy drops is that it didn't taste to most people like, like eating fresh ginger. But that's because we, we were able to find a, a great kind of partner in California where they were able to take ginger root and use a, a special technique it's called supercritical CO2 extraction, which is like the cleanest way to extract basically the good stuff that we wanted in the solids and then using kind of the special techniques that go into making that hard candy that we actually the ginger undergoes a little bit of a transformation through both the heat and the dehydration and so you have some of these compounds called gingerols that are changed into one that are like shojols and and I'm, I'm saying that with probably the worst accent it's uh it's a Japanese word for ginger, but it's another compound 
And we were able to actually change that ratio through that process. And clinically, it gave us much, much better results. So after all that said and done, that took about two years to to find all of the, the source ingredients, to find which one was best, and to to go through an, an IRB, an institutional review board, because we will, we did want to do a clinical study on humans. And so you just can't, you know, you, you have to be very compliant on that. You could get in a lot of trouble if you just like start giving things to people and doing data. So uh, that whole process took us about two years before we finally had a tummy drop. And as I alluded to at first, people were like, no, this is pepper, not ginger, and it doesn't taste like ginger. So we kind of learned from that and, and had to embrace food science in a way, work with some great food scientists to add back in a little bit of the volatile, like essential oils of ginger to give it a little more ginger flavor. And, um, and it was just, it was kind of fascinating. And at that same time in our life, we had met a great friend of ours. His name is Fabrizio Scanardi. He's a, a chef from Italy who's been a chef for like 35 years. And he was help, able to help us refine some of the flavors of, of the tummy drops, where uh, the first two that we came out with were peppermint oil and the, and the ginger. But we further down the road, we re- released some called the Chef Series, where we were to, able to get like really good culinary kind of combinations together. So it, in, in addition to hopefully people feeling better, they would say, hey, that tastes pretty darn good, too. It's kind of like a, like a, you know, a, a fancy a fancy tummy drop in a way for, for a lack of a better word. But, but we originally designed this for our, our own patients and it was, it was, you know, peppermint oil. It's a natural antispasmodic. So instead of giving someone like Levsin and a chemical antispasmodic that could make them, you know, kind of feel a little goofy, uh, it, it, that that's where peppermint oil would work. And, and a lot of that seems to work through this receptor called TRPM8. That is the same receptor in your mouth where if you if you chew a mint, mint gum or have a mint, if you're especially on a cold day like like today, you breathe in, you can your mouth gets very cold, and it's so some of those same receptors in the colon that can be triggered by certain things in our diet, and and peppermint helps to alleviate that. Uh, ginger seems to work in different ways. There there is a direct anti-inflammatory effect on the gut, but it also gets into the brain. Going back to that kind of that brain gut connection. At some of the same sites where there's a, a drug, Zofran, a 5-HT3 receptor, it actually send, tends to work there too. So, so th- there, there is definitely a good science behind behind the, these botanicals, and 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 that was our goal. Say, hey, we can now give these to our patients, and from there, it, it we we it really kind of it, it showed us how ubiquitous GI problems are because people started taking it for reasons that we never even intended. So, you know, a lot of uh, pregnant mothers with morning sickness will take it. Uh, we'll, we'll have a, a motion sickness. So people on cruise ships, uh, there's actually, a, we get emails all the time from virtual reality gamers who get like kind of motion sick from their, their virtual reality experience, take the ginger tummy drops. Or, or one of the, the things that's happened recently, which is really kind of warms my heart, is there's so many oncology dietitians now recommending tummy drops to their patients on on chemo and it, it it's really made us feel good to be able to to start even a sampling program for these these dietitians and they give them to their their patients and and we the feedback we get is that often it's actually working better than than the prescription pill that's like 50 bucks a pill so that that's really 
that's really, you know, been one of the things that's made us feel really happy is, man, we were able to, to create something that, that people are finding benefits from that's really clean and, and simple. And, and it's further kind of like fueled our fire just getting comments from, from customers that, man, there is still a lot of science we can do and to make it even better or to come up with new products that are related to this. And, and so, and, and that, that's kind of the, the, the tummy drops uh, chronology there, but, and, and there's so much more to tummy drops, but, but that, that's probably the, the long-winded overview of them. Well, let's summarize it a little bit. So basically, all these patients came in, they've got the same digestive complaints. You know that there's botanical, botanicals out there that will help uh, fix this, but when you told them to go do it on their own, it was a mess. And so, mm-hmm. and you knew that the research was there, and you knew that you were a mad scientist. And so, first mm-hmm. you you tried, you failed, and then you tried again, which is fantastic because a lot of people just stop at that first try and fail. And so, you created this great clean product that was a void in the market, right? So we've got two different varieties primarily, and then fancy black label. So we've got peppermint, right. peppermint for the lower GI pain because it's a natural antispasmodic because of the way. It affects those receptors. It's very similar to that cool feeling it acts in the gut. And then we've got ginger for the um, upper or nausea. And um, and so and then I also didn't know that it had anti-inflammatory um, results in the brain. So I wonder if, like, when you say that that has anti-inflammatory impacts in the brain, what do you think are some other applications you could be using the ginger tummy drops for? Yeah, and, and for the the ginger tummy drops, the the anti-inflammatory it, it seems to be limited to the ten, the gut. We'll, we'll say so the stomach, the esophagus, the small intestine, but it, it actually can block receptors in the brain, like the the five HT three receptors. So so yeah, so we actually going along those those same lines. We'll have a lot of of customers who are taking them for migraine headaches now. Or because of the anti-inflammatory action in the esophagus, uh, people will say, hey, this helps with my acid acid reflux. And even patients who have inflammatory bowel disease will say, hey, you know, these, these really calm down my, my inflammation. But yeah, but ginger has so much potential. And, and it's, it's one of those things where as time goes on for our company, one of my biggest goals is to really tease apart you know, these hundreds of compounds and to say, well, maybe this ratio of the ginger oils to the show, show is, is good for, let's say chemotherapy related nausea, but this ratio is really good for, you know, for inflammation from Crohn's or I even have had a lot of customers say, please do investigations on smoking cessation. And I I had the most heartfelt uh, message from, uh, from a woman saying that, you know, my husband tried so many things to quit smoking and your ginger tummy drops are the one that did it. And I said to my, I turned to my, my wife and I'm like, you know, we, we never in a million years would have guessed that, but it, but it shows us to a degree that we do know a lot about medicine, but that is just a super small fraction of what we don't know. And, and, and by doing investigations and, and, and listening and, and, and writing it down, one of my favorite quotes is, if you're not writing it down, you're just messing around is, is, you know, just, just kind of keeping yourself accountable, making observations, recording them that, that there's so much potential that, that can still be pursued in this, in this field. I love it. I actually had to write that down because, um, I, I need my patients to write down things for data as we're working through things sometimes. And so it's really, 
<laughs> really funny. Um, <laughs> those are fantastic messages. And so it's really, we kind of got to get this out. So I have a couple of qualifying questions. There's, I'm going to share this with some dietitians that work with particular sensitivities. And one of the benefits of tummy drops is that it's a very clean, simple, now it's not simple on the back end, but on the ingredient side, it's pretty simple. It's literally <laughs> the compound, the ginger, um, essentially, or the peppermint and cane sugar. And then there's also natural flavors on the label, but the natural flavors are also sugar basically right well the natural flavors are usually like an essential oil and um, yeah the natural flavors are something that we added them because it, it made them much more palatable and, and they're essentially just organic natural flavors usually essential oils uh, from from plants so let's say on our, our peach one we have essential oil from, from peach to give to give a peach flavor and, and it's yeah you're right though it's usually just four ingredients it's the Two sugars, so brown rice syrup and, and cane sugar. And the reason there has to be two sugars is actually something I learned through from food scientists is that if you have just one sugar, it makes such a perfect crystalline structure that it's very brittle and it can shatter. It's kind of like a crystal that's too perfect. It can shatter. But by mixing two different sugars together, it, it disrupts how perfect that crystal is and it makes it a lot more tough. So, so that's why there's two sugars in there and then kind of the good stuff, the botanical and then the natural flavor. So it's really just four ingredients. And, and when we designed it, we knew that a lot of people who were going to take this had problems with, let's say, you know, gluten or, you know, a lot of, a lot of fructose or you, you name it. I mean, there, there's so many allergens out there that we wanted to steer clear of all of them essentially. And, um, and so we said, how do we do it? We, we, we do it by making the product as simple as it can. And, and that's something that we weren't quite sure how people would receive it because some, sometimes people embrace that, that, that kind of that, that idea that if, if a little is good, a lot is better. So you, you've got 20 ingredients. Now I know I'm getting something special. <laughs> and we thought, oh, man, what if we get that? But people have been super happy saying, hey, there's just four ingredients and they're simple and that's great. I, I love that. So it's uh, we, we were really happily, or we were, we were very happy to see that 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 was received pretty well. Yeah, no, I think the trend is people want less ingredients, <laughs> not more. That's my that's kind of my view anyway. So uh, I don't know how long tummy drafts have been around, but are they easy to get at big retailers, or are they mostly online? How do people pick these up? Yeah, yeah. So so that's one of the things that we we really didn't know what we were doing from the business end, and and it's kind of a, amazing that the company survived from that perspective. But but it's like anything. You you go to the school of hard knocks and you you figure out what what went wrong and you learn from your mistakes and hopefully don't repeat them again. So the way we were able to get the product out there uh, primarily is through e-commerce and and certainly Amazon.com. Uh, they're the pretty much the easiest way to get tummy drops anywhere across the, the country. Um, and online also, yeah, walmart.com has them as well. And it really depends for brick and mortar stores where you live. In, in the Midwest, uh, Whole Foods carries them as well as a, a market called Fresh Time. And then beyond there, it, it's hit or miss. Uh, we're actually, we've matured as a company now and we, we actually finally hired like employees for for a while, for most of the time we had this company, it was just my wife and I uh, kind of operating this with, with three little kids and, and medical practices. So you can imagine there wasn't a lot of sleep there for a while. Um, but we've matured and we actually have hired 
hired people to bring come onto our team, and they're great team members. And they're and one of the big pushes we're doing now is to get into more brick and mortar stores because it, it is a common question we get when people will email us or call us like, where can I buy these? And we're like, well, unfortunately, there, you know, there isn't a place that has these right now where you live, but you can get it from Amazon. So I would say over the next year or two that that we're hoping to get tummy drops in a lot of brick and mortar locations and uh we're gonna in fact release a new um, SKU, like a, a new um product packaging uh there'll be a lot more convenience a, a cute little tin that i imagine would be easier for retailers to have at checkouts but right now if, if unless you're in the midwest it, it's it's usually going to be um, it's going to be Amazon or, or Walmart.com. Well, some of us in the Midwest are pretty used to those retailers in general anyway, because we're a long ways from the other ones. So, well, thank you so much for sharing all of your knowledge with us. It was very interesting um, to learn. You know, it's, it's refreshing to hear someone with so much integrity creating something, really going out of their way to serve their patients um, and their clients and bring, you know, even unknown benefits to the rest of the world as well. Oh, Krista, no, thank you so much. This was a blast, and I, 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 I love doing it. So thank you so much. Well, next time, you can come back, and we'll talk more about your food science adventures, okay? Hey, that, that sounds great. I'm going to keep working on that, that gluten-free uh, wheat bread. I'll, I'll keep you apprised of that one. Okay, sounds good. <laughs> one of the best gifts you could give us at The Less Stressed Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stressed Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stressed Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock.